Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 302 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire and Red Letter Challenge. We also have an Ask Carrie at the end. Uh, Tony's got a question. He wants to know if you could give yourself a bit of advice to your 15 to 20 year old self, what would it be? I get asked that question a lot. Going to give you my uh, most common answer, but then one that I rarely give. So that's right at the end of the podcast. My guest today on this episode, our guest, is Steve Green. He's the president of Hobby Lobby. Uh, Hobby Lobby is a fascinating, fascinating story. Um, I love stories of things that start out really small. And if you know a little bit about Hobby Lobby, you know that it started in the Green family garage back almost 50 years ago, which is crazy. Uh, Steve is founder David Green's son. He became the president of Hobby Lobby in 2004, and uh, he has helped the family business grow to more than, well, next year, 900 stores in almost all of the states, over 37,000 employees. And we talk about all that. And we also, I love counterintuitive stories. So Steve and I talk about why their retail chains are growing when everybody else's are declining. It's fascinating. I mean, I mean, you know, so many places are just shuddering. Malls are sputtering and uh, chains that have been iconic are collapsing and these guys are growing. What's the story with that? Why do they pay their employees way above minimum wage and how do they make that profitable? We talk about all that stuff. Uh, Steve is also the chairman of the board for Museum of the Bible, which the Green family had a major hand in building. He's also an author and uh, wow, I got to tell you, it's going to be a great conversation. So if you're an entrepreneur or a church leader, I think you're going to absolutely love today's episode. Also, guys, if you subscribe, you get things absolutely free. We have had just a crazy amount of amazing guests lately. Gordon McDonald, oh my goodness, episode 297. I keep hearing from you guys pretty much every day on that. That's one of those for the book. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back. And coming up, we've got Rebecca Lyons, Chris Lemma, Carlos Whitaker. Uh, we recorded this for those of you who follow Carlos before he went through the most recent episode with his daughter, which we continue to pray for. But uh, John Orberg is back. Uh, we've got Jasmine Starr from Instagram. Uh, and well, wait till you hear the 2020 lineup. It's going to be spectacular. So if you subscribe, you get this all for free. And I'm just so glad to have you guys along on the journey. Thank you for sharing uh, thanks for talking about this podcast with your friends. We had an all-time record October, uh, best month ever in the history of the podcast. And guess why? That's because of you guys. And thank you so much for standing with our partners too. A lot of you are starting to use ProMedia Fire and I'm so excited. So here's the challenge, right? And you're thinking about staffing next year and you're like, well, we got to do better on media, but you're like, well, we can't really afford a staff person. Have you checked out ProMedia Fire and ProWeb Fire? So here's what they want to do. They want to work with 20 churches next year for their 2020 growth program. And they want to provide a custom plan to help ignite growth in your church with strategies that include Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, a new church website, custom graphics and videos. All that is packaged up in this growth plan. So few requirements. First of all, you got to be prepared for growth and have systems in place. 
You must be willing to make a monthly financial investment through 2020. And then in return, you get a discount of up to 30% for normal services. And then just share a little bit about your experience in 2020. So if you're a church ready for growth and you just need help reaching more people, you can apply online. Only 20 churches will be accepted and uh, you've only got a couple more weeks too. Applications end December 1st. So go to promediafire.com forward slash 2020 and uh, they'd love to help you out. Now, as a pastor, I also know the grind, okay? Every single week, I'm doing that right now. You got to prepare a message plus all the other stuff you've got going on. Sometimes it's a really good idea to get uh, some messages that are done for you and a turnkey program that's done for you and one that over 60,000 people have benefited from so far is called the Red Letter Challenge. It takes the teachings of Jesus, which in many Bibles are in red letters, and turns it into a preaching program, small group Bible study. Now there's a kids program and so much more. Large churches have used it. Small churches have used it. Churches see growth in small groups by an average of 40%. It results in increased weekend attendance. And it's really good for those of you who are reaching a significant amount of unchurched people because Almost everybody's interested in Jesus. So, yeah, and I say that because even if they don't really necessarily have faith, they're like, you know what? I'd, I'd like to know more about love, more about teachings, more about peace. I mean, so it's, it's, it's incredible how universally people are attracted to the message of Jesus. So what you can do if you're interested in this turnkey campaign for your church, go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. You'll also find some discounts up to 40% off. So you can start with as few as 10 copies of the Red Letter Challenge, or if you're a large church, you can get a thousand or more. And uh, just head on over to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. Well, I'm excited to dive into my conversation with Steve Green and remember to hang on to the end for Ask Carrie. But in the meantime, my interview with Steve Green, who is the president of Hobby Lobby. Well, Steve, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. Man. Yeah, Looking yeah. To it. Um, so since 2004, you've been the president of Hobby Lobby. Um, but I want to go back to sort of origins. I'm always fascinated in origins story. Uh, you know, Hobby Lobby is the, is it the largest privately held what, arts and crafts craft store? Yep. Thank you. In yep. the world, yep. not just America, but the world. Um, but it didn't start out that way, did it? Nope. Nope. No, it actually started in a 300 square foot room. Um, <laughs> uh, and prior to that, my dad was doing some manufacturing when I was seven, my brother was nine. And um, we... Uh, started our business career gluing frames together for seven cents a frame as a seven and a nine year older, and uh, but then it was in 1972 when he rented the 600 square foot space. The back 300 square foot he put in uh, the manufacturing. The front 300 square foot was uh, for a small retail store that he called Hobby Lobby, and uh, that, that's how we got started. Yeah, and your dad, that wasn't like he didn't come right out of the gate being an entrepreneur. He was working for someone else? He was working at a general merchandise company called TG&Y, which is no longer around. Uh, he started his career at McClellan's, a five-and-dime store in Altus, Oklahoma. Right. Went to TG&Y, and then while he was working for TG&Y, uh, started the manufacturing and eventually opened the retail store. So, I mean, it's it's fairly public knowledge. You guys are on the Forbes list, right? Along your family is along with Richard Branson and people like that. Right. Um, but it was a pretty modest upbringing, is it oh, not? Yeah. yeah, my dad, when he left TGNY, he was making 26000 uh, a year. At that time, that would have been a, maybe a upper middle class income. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, to go off onto this new venture, it was a risk. 
risk, and he took a half a cut in pay. Uh, Thirteen thousand is what he was earning, which would be lower income, lower middle income, and um, so it was. It was a, a sacrifice uh, yeah. for dad and my mom uh, and the family. And uh, but uh, he he the the business did well as he was able to give full time to it. Uh, it started growing and and did well, though there was ups and downs. I spent a couple of days with your family, and we hope to have your dad on the podcast one day. And I don't want you to speak for him, but why, why, as you remember it, did he decide he was going to step out on his own? Like, he obviously wasn't hurting what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, he was doing good. He loved retail, mm-hmm. was doing well there, uh, but he just had the the bug to do his own business. And um, uh, when, when he started the manufacturing, it, it just that entrepreneurial spirit that he had and uh, saw an opportunity first there. Uh, uh, there was a design trend of decorating walls with uh, a, a collage of small frames. And so he saw that opportunity and and took it and was doing well there when the opportunity for the retail, which is really his heart. We still do some manufacturing. That, that business is still a part of Hobby Lobby. But the retail was what his background was, what his love was, and he saw that opportunity and uh, uh, made that jump and the risk, and it, it's worked out well for him. Yeah. Now, you know, second generation, which is what you are, right. you didn't start the business. You're the son of the man and woman who started the business. doesn't always go well. There's all kinds of stories about, you know, alcoholism or affluence or drug abuse or all those things. And I mean, the headlines are filled with, with stories like that in the past and in the present. Talk about that journey for you. What is it like? Sometimes, you know, people who have high-achieving parents, you think it's a blessing, but sometimes it, it, it can feel like pressure. Yeah. How did you process that? Yeah, I, when I was in high school, I remember uh, one of my teachers, which is a coach, making a comment, joking about how that, uh, you know, our family, when the ashtrays filled up, we would, you know, sell our car and buy a new one as if we were affluent. And, yeah. and you, know, I, you know, you look back and you don't see that it was being all that affluent. When I graduated high school, we had eight stores. Now, that that's good. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it, it was not to the degree or the pressure it was today, it's still we were still struggling at the time. As a matter of fact, a few years after I graduated and was working full-time in the business, my father thought we were going to go out of business uh, because of the struggles in the economy. And so it, it was still uh, early on in the business. It, there was a lot of growth, a lot of hard work that that my dad uh, had to get it to the eight stores that there were were when I uh, started working full-time. So, so it was still, it was still just a it was a small a to mid-sized business, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it was good. We had eight stores. It was nice. Uh, but uh, it, it obviously uh, has continued to grow and expand. So so for me, it was just I, I knew I wanted to go into the business, uh, worked there when I was in high school in the summers and on weekends. And uh, as soon as I graduated high, out of high school, that's what uh, I started doing. How did you know or why did you decide that's what you want to do? Well, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I remember sitting in the auditorium when I was a senior in high school, uh, contemplating, you know, going to college and thinking, okay, I can go to four years of college and then, you know, go into the business. And I remember thinking, would I be further ahead if I were to just go ahead and start working as soon as I graduated or go to college for four years and then start working in the business? And I remember thinking and making the decision in that auditorium, I think I'll just go ahead and go work in the business because I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I figured on the job training would be as good as uh, what I could you know, learn in in a, a college course. So so I just told dad, I said, I was ready to go to work when I graduated. And he gave me a job and been working there ever since. Great. Now, where did he start you? 
Uh, I started with the title was called a liaison. Uh, okay. So what he wanted me to do is he wanted me to travel to the stores that we had at the time uh, every other week, kind of like what a supervisor, what he knew a supervisor did at the company he came from. Mm-hmm. He didn't give me a title of supervisor because I'm sitting there, <laughs> you know, communicating with managers that had been in retail longer than I had been living. And so uh, it was just a liaison. I was a communication between the corporate office and the stores. I'd let them know what was going on, ask them, you know, what what are the struggles? You know, how can we help? And we just a kind of a coordination, a, a communication between the store and and the corporate office. Uh, so uh, started out traveling on the road, uh, visiting our stores. What'd you learn in those days? Those first few lessons. I think that um, you know, there's there's a lot to learn. Uh, yeah. That um, you know, I, th- I think early on, it's one of those that uh, to really do uh, run a business well, you have to be willing to make the hard decisions that. Um, a store manager, if he isn't willing to really build a good organization and he has people that are not doing their job and is not willing to let them go, uh, work with them and tr- try to help them all they can, but and not willing to let them go, that makes them have to work extra hard. And so they have to build a good organization to be a good store manager. Uh, they may be good people. They may be hard workers. But if they're not building their organization, it, it's going to be hard for them to manage a store. And so those are some of the lessons that uh, many lessons, but uh, th- those are some of the key lessons uh, or one of them that you learn early on. Yeah. So how many stores do you have now? 850 is what we started the year with, and we'll be close to 900. There's a few stores that are may wind up moving to next year, but uh, we'll be close to 900 by the end of the year. My goodness. So that's what I want to talk to you about for a moment, because you're president of Hobby Lobby. You're making a lot of those day-to-day calls on whether you're expanding. And I mean, one of the stories of the last 15 years has been the decline of retail. And it started really slowly. And now it seems to be falling off a cliff. If you visited any malls recently, (laughs) you know, it's getting harder and harder all the time. Amazon's changed the game. The internet has changed the game. And you're opening stores. If I remember, I put this in my notes, 54 new stores last year and 65-ish for 2019. Is that accurate? Right. And some of those 65 are are moving off to next year based on permitting and and construction and where it's still uh, yet to be determined how many will actually get to open this year. But uh, yeah, there's really two two uh, events over the last uh, you know 20 years or so that has changed retail, digital and delivery. Uh, right. The digital world has changed. My brother put in a Christian bookstore selling a lot of music mm-hmm. and, and Christian books, and those worlds have been changed by the digital age. Yeah. Uh, people are not buying CDs like they used to <laughs> or books like they used to. So so we, we were experiencing that in the Mardell stores mm-hmm. and uh, are still trying to find out what is the right model. There's many bookstores that are closing. Uh, yeah, I mean, whole chains have yeah. shut down, yeah. right? So uh, secular bookstores, Christian bookstores alike, uh, because it's just, that's a changing world. And for the rest of retail, the delivery model is what has created a bit of a disruption there and where mm-hmm. the malls are struggling because a lot of people are just going online and having products delivered to their home. So our industry in the arts and crafts business is not as impacted by that delivery or the digital uh, to some degree in both. But, um, you know, the the digital world impacted the Mardell stores, the Christian bookstores, where our uh, craft stores, we're, we're catering to the creative mind and they like to come in and touch and feel and see. Now, okay. if, they just, if they just need another 8 by 10 canvas, they can order it and we have a digital uh, or a, a delivery online service where people can buy our products. But a lot of the creative mind is getting out and 
being inspired. Um, and so we're not as impacted. Our online is growing at a faster percent than mm-hmm. our brick and mortar, but it's still a small percent in comparison to some other industries where it's a significant impact. So uh, we're we're fortunate in that case that is not as disruptive. Uh, but but those two factors have been a big disruptor in the retail space. Oh, for sure. I mean, do you see that changing in the next five years or seven years, or you're going to continue your expansion plan? Uh, I think we will continue our expansion plan. We've looked at uh, the 48 contiguous states, which is yeah. where we're looking. We're not looking at Alaska or Hawaii or another country. International. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and we've determined there's about 1,400 stores that we could put in. We've kind of, I, I had the real estate guys tell me every, if they could put in every store they would like, tell me every location. And we've identified about 1,400 total, and we're going to be close to 900 uh, by the end of the year. So um, uh, we will continue to expand that footprint as well as uh, maximizing the online opportunity as well. So that's incredible. When almost everybody else is retreating, you're advancing. Do you have a parallel in other companies that you're studying or industries that you're studying or fields you're studying where they're opening brick and mortar? Or are you kind of a, a unicorn in that? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure there are some other industries, but the industries that I have looked at uh, are more contracting. Uh, yeah. And not just in retail, but you look at uh, newspapers. Uh, people get their news differently than mm-hmm. the local paper. You look at universities with the online option in universities or maybe more brick and mortar than is what is necessary. Uh, of course, we talked about bookstores. Uh, so each industry is a little bit different. But we just happen to be uh, not as impacted as much as others. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you have, and I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but like, are there other sub-explanations other than creatives love to see and touch and and feel? Because I I mean, there's grace for sure. There's a blessing on it. But can you think of other factors that might be at play? You know, I, I, that's the one that comes to mind. There, I'm wow. sure there are other factors, but the only thing that I can come up with is, you know, we are catering to the creative mind. Okay. Um, and um, again, uh, there are, our industry, you know, there's uh, changes in our industry and that could be a factor. But um, the, the, what comes prominent to my mind is just the type of product that we sell. So is it roughly a $5 billion company? That- uh, we did five billion last year, uh, and right at the five billion uh, for 2018, which is exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, the internet tells you all kinds of things, but in some of my research, uh, you pay well above minimum wage. Is that true? We do. Several years ago, um, because we could afford it, we elected to start our starting employees at a higher than the minimum wage. I believe what we started was at a nine dollar, uh, and then the next year we went to ten, and then to eleven. Right now we're at fifteen dollars and seventy cents is where we start our full time employees. Part time, wow. uh, a little less than that. So isn't that almost double minimum wage? It's uh, just just a little more than double the minimum wage, and um, and it's one that we, we do that. And I remember uh, Dad years ago when we started this was most excited uh, about being able to do that, and we do it. Because we can, one, yeah. there was a time in our history we couldn't have afforded that. Sure. Um, and yeah, this uh, is not startup advice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but because we had, uh, we're getting to a position of being profitable, we, uh, enough that we wanted to be able to help our employees. And it really is a win win situation. It is good for our employee, but it's also good for us because it attracts a better employee. Uh, okay. We have more people that are willing to work uh, and are able to work for that. 
we win by having uh, committed employees, and um, it, it obviously is a win for them because they're uh, starting out at a much higher rate than they could in many places. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive that you're advancing when everyone else is retreating in terms of bricks-and-mortar retail. Uh, you're paying more in an economy where a lot of people are paying less or you're getting less product. It, it's fascinating. Um Say more about that well, because it seems to be the reverse of everything else that's happening in the economy. Yeah, and I, I've thought about that before. I'm sitting here thinking uh, when dad went into this business, uh, could he have foreseen that? And yeah. of course not. Yeah, you know, there, there's no way that uh, he would, would have foreseen that. And we've even talked about the local paper that in, in Oklahoma City, where our corporate offices are, that has sold. And, uh, you know, they, they would you know, 20 years before the digital age, you would never have imagined that newspapers would be less of a factor than what they are today. And mm-hmm. so there, there's no way to have guessed that. And, and you know, the only conclusion I come up with is that God knows that um, <laughs> yeah. and uh, was directing dad for his purposes and, um, and and has blessed the business. And we happen to be in a business that um, uh, has some stability. Same thing with recession. It has been said that the craft industry is recession-proof. I don't know that it's hmm. recession-proof, but but we don't ride the waves of the high and the low economies. It's oh, it's more. It's not like steady. real estate or yeah. You know, high-ticket items are going to ride the wave. Uh, you know, economies <laughs> you down. Boat dealer. Yeah, yeah. you're going to feel that one. Car, yeah. So <laughs> um, so our industry, in some cases, there's maybe a variety of reasons, but if the economy's off, people may start making a gift or making a second income by making jewelry or whatever. Oh, yeah. And uh, so uh, for, for a variety of reasons, potentially, our, our industry just doesn't, uh, is, doesn't peak at high and doesn't tank in, in low economies. So again, uh, just a, another uh, intriguing uh, factor of our industry that I don't know that Dad would have known any or thought through all of that, but happened to be the industry that I believe God led him to. Yeah. How many employees do you have now? We have about uh, 40, 41,000 uh, yeah. employees uh, in the company. And you pay them well, uh, double minimum wage, and you move up from there. What are some other keys to motivating a workforce? Well, I, I think that as we build a good organization, you obviously have to treat employees as you would want to be treated, mm-hmm. uh, with fair being fair and kind, um, obviously paying them uh, a wage that is good. But but we we obviously know that we need to provide uh, good benefits and care for our employees. And so uh, we have chaplains, for example, at our corporate office um, that if a uh, there, there's about 6,000 employees on our campus in Oklahoma City, which yeah, is where massive, yeah, about 10 million square feet there, and uh, and and people can, you know, while they're on the clock, go and have a discussion. Um, you know, many times people have challenges that they're dealing with in life because life pre- creates challenges. You know, with kids or marriage or finances, and it's easy to say leave your troubles at home when you come to work, but that just isn't realistic, yeah. um, and so. If we can help an employee uh, through our chaplains to uh, help their life be in better order, then they become a better employee. So it's easier for the 6,000 that are on the campus to have that access. But even in the stores, they have access to uh, to call the corporate office and have a discussion with uh, one of our chaplains. So it's those kinds of things that, uh, you know, hopefully our employees realize that we, we care about them. When their life is good, then they make 
better employees. Hmm. So uh, I don't know why, but over the last uh, few months, I've had numerous discussions with CEOs of publicly traded companies who talk about the pressure of every 90 days. I was talking to one the other day, runs a multi-billion dollar company out of New York. He was the chief technology officer. And he was talking about taking the company private because he said, if we can get off a publicly traded company, we can live beyond 90 days. But everything, and he's in the retail industry and clothing, and he just said, we're, we're, we're struggling at such a deep level. I'm going to make an assumption here that money is not the bottom line of the business. What would you say your bottom line is? Yeah, well... As if it was, you wouldn't be paying double minimum wage. Yeah. Well, well obviously, uh, what, what, what has developed in our business, first, it was a matter of surviving. You sure. Know, we're, we're here. We got we to gotta survive. But, but as we have become profitable, um, the ministry side of our business developed in, in our giving and even through chaplains and, and what we're able to do. And it really made it that much more real that this is, this is a ministry. Uh, we're here to, one, be an example in the business community of what a Christian business should be like, though uh, we fail to do that regularly because we're imperfect, but that's what we strive to do. Um, and, and and then it is exciting to be able to uh, support ministries uh, uh, around the world and locally that uh, ultimately point people to what we believe is the answer. We believe that there's only two things in life that are going to be eternal, uh, and that is man's soul and God's word. Mm. Uh, God's word says it's going to last forever and our souls are forever. And so when we can invest in that, that is what brings purpose to us going to work and it makes it exciting to, uh, to be the best that we can be. I almost got the sense hanging out for a couple of days at Hobby Lobby headquarters and spending a lot of time with your father that um, the business is really important. Margins are important. People are important. Great customer service is important. But it almost felt like it's become a means to an end and that there's a greater end. Is that fair or is that a mischaracterization? No, it, it is. And that has become more real as yeah. we have been able to do more in the way of ministry. I want to make our business and I want to get to 1,400 stores as soon as we can because that means I'm making that much more money. Right. And the more money we make, the more we can give away. Uh, mm. We're giving away half of our profits. And if I can, I can, if I can make more profits, that's more that we can give away. Our family who have been on the payroll for uh, really since we started increasing our minimum, we've not had an increase in pay. Uh, so mm. for, for many years- So you haven't making, had a raise. We haven't had a raise in years. And so we're not here to make more money. We're here to do more so that we can be uh, a greater impact for good in our world. How do you draw that line? Like how, how do you know, okay, you know what? I'm fine. I don't need any more. And obviously, you know, your company is dealing in the billions. So we're not talking about, can we afford gas or bread? But like, you know, people would just be, well, I need a better jet or I need a better house or I need a lake house or 12 houses or where, where's that line for you? Well, and, and not that anybody should feel too, too sorry for us for not having a raise. We're, we, we're making a good living. And yeah. so, it's it's fine. We we just don't need any more. Uh, and yeah. so uh, you, we've got nice homes, nice cars. We're we're doing fine. Um, and uh, we don't we don't need a bigger yacht or a bigger plane. And don't have yachts or planes. Uh, company has planes, but um, so it, it's it's just a matter of saying you know this we're 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 good. And our real drive is to say how can we do more for God and His kingdom, and that's what drives us. Well, um, I'm going to jump down a little bit of my questions, but um, 
Bill Gates, been listening to him talk recently and Warren Buffett have their giving pledge, right? And it encourages wealthy people to give away the majority of their wealth. And so for far 204 signatures um, online, again, in my research, you guys signed that pledge or? We did. It's, it's one of those that that's what we're doing. That's what you're doing. Um, and so, so you're because in. we are uh, giving away half of our profits, it's it's mm-hmm. one of those. And some of those may be, you know, as they pass away, they're going to give half of it away. I'm not sure everybody may do that a little bit differently. But uh, but we we started a few years. We actually started in uh, the 90s increasing our giving uh, to a point where that we got to uh, where we were giving half of our profits. And uh, so we we continue to do that uh, to this day, and uh, it is exciting to be able to do that, and we love doing that. Bill Gates said it's actually really hard to get people to sign on. Yeah, <laughs> he yep. said number one, it involves death. Uh, yep. it, at least in some of the interviews I've listened to him give, I haven't talked to him personally about it, obviously, but he was saying it's really hard for these billionaires or multimillionaires to think, oh, one day I'm not going to be here. Yeah. Because they're they're the bomb. They're they're the source of everything, and and then it's like really half, like half. Uh, but then he went on to say that he's approaching it very much like, and in his case, it's often malaria or engineering away disease or or that sort of thing. It's very healthcare related or sustainable living related. But he says rather than just giving money to a charity, he's trying to approach it with the same innovation he took to Microsoft. So they're looking for, you know, organizations. We're going to fund research that will actually create a cure for X or a cure for Y, or we're going to experiment with vaccines to see what we can do. And he's trying to apply the mind he put software to investing, which I thought was really interesting. And then you tour Hobby Lobby headquarters, which really is something to see when you fly over it on the way into Oklahoma City. And uh, you realize this is just vast. 10 million square feet is crazy. But you've invested in some major projects. Do you want to tell us about what you're trying to fund? Because it's pretty inspiring. Well, we got started on a journey. It's uh, almost 10 years ago now, a journey we would not have imagined being on. But uh, we feel like God put us on that journey. And that is to build a Bible museum. Uh, and it was originally looked at uh, in to be in Dallas, a group that wanted to put one in Dallas, mm-hmm. asked for our help. And and through a series of events, it wound up being in D.C. We opened 2017 and uh, has been an exciting journey for us uh, that is about a book that we love, that has been a guiding principle for our family, for our business, and uh, to to invite people to consider this book for their own lives is what we want to do. The purpose of the museum is to invite all people to engage with the Bible. Uh, okay. And so we just want them to come in. We're We're... Uh, you know, being neutral, we're just telling you its history, its impact, and its narrative. And we want people to leave there being inspired to say, I want to know this book a little bit better. Um, and so uh, it, it has an ex- been an exciting journey that uh, primarily my wife and I have been the point uh, people for the family and, mm-hmm. and, and facilitating that. As a matter of fact, my last eight, nine years have been more involved in the Bible Museum than it has been even at Hobby Lobby and, <laughs> you know, giving up some responsibilities there. And um, but uh, it, it's just been an exciting journey because this is a book that's changed our world. Uh, it's had a greater impact than practically any uh, other book or any other uh, event in, in history. And so Life Magazine, as a matter of fact, in the year 2000, came out with a publication, The 100 Most Important Events of a Millennium. And number one was Gutenberg Prints the Bible. So for a 1,000 years, from the year 1,000 to 2,000, they say 
that it was Gutenberg printing the Bible. It wasn't the Gutenberg Press. Right. It, it was, was Gutenberg, Gutenberg printing, printing the Bible. Bible. So, uh, you know, we, we, I don't know that we know to the degree that it's impacted our world. We just want people to, to know that. We point them to it and hopefully inspire them to get to know the book better. Uh, okay, I toured it when it was still under raw construction. I mean, you could fall off a, a scaffolding kind yep. of construction. Yep. So I haven't seen the final product, but I've seen pictures. I've had lots of friends who have been through, and even in its raw form, it was pretty awe-inspiring. You know, usually, uh, I think you'll hear this right, sometimes when churches do something, it can be a bit Mickey Mouse sometimes. You think yep. Museum of the Bible, okay, go into a library, see a bunch of books. This is not what you did. Can you can you describe the scope and the scale of the project? Yeah, we we did a survey. The real, the primary question is: if we build it, will they come? And mm-hmm. um, you know, is is there an interest in a Bible museum in, in America anymore? The survey showed overwhelmingly there was eighty percent acceptance of of the concept. They liked the idea, and, and the gentleman that did the survey said, "You have a winning concept on your hands." Okay. And I said, "It was thinking later. You know, that's great." a restaurant is a winning concept and they go out of business all day long. <laughs> yes. So it's not- People do need to eat. Yeah. It's not just that we have a winning concept, but it still needs to be done well. It yeah. needs to be done with excellence. And so we were engaging some of the leading design firms in the country that uh, work with Disney that have built presidential libraries to help us tell this book story in an engaging way. Um, one of the comments that we get often is that it exceeded uh, our expectation and I kind of discount that because I don't know that their expectations were too high on a Bible museum. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But we have really uh, done the best job that we could in trying to make this story of this book come alive. It is an incredible story to be told. And so we, we wanted to do it with excellence. The museum itself is 430,000 square feet. And we literally scratched the surface of this book story because there is no building that can contain this book story. <laughs> and so example I use is we have a kind of a corner that talks about biblical art. I could feel the museum. Well, that's biblical Europe. Art. Europe is biblical art. Exactly. I mean, you, you, half the museums are half full of biblical art. Yeah. And so uh, we, we literally uh, are, are scratching the surface. This, this is an incredible book that has an incredible story and it has been exciting uh, to be a part of uh, telling that story in the museum. Is the budget for the museum, like how much you spent on constructing, is that public knowledge? or uh, It's been out there. It's about $500 million is what the cost of the building uh, and the const- renovation of the, the building. Uh, I could argue that the artifacts in the building are priceless. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them are one of a kind. Um, but uh, the, the construction of the building itself is spread. Can you talk about the artifacts? Because you and your wife, uh, Jackie, you only started collecting privately, what, about a decade ago? It was 2009 when we yeah. were first. So we're coming yeah. up on our 10th anniversary of our first uh, uh, first acquisition. And when we first bought it, it was just a, we were looking at giving to this group that wanted to put a Bible museum in. We thought we would help them out. But uh, as our collection grew, we kind of took the responsibility to make sure that the dream became a reality. What was the first piece? It was called a, a uh, uh, Richard Roll, which was a translation of the Book of Psalms into English. And the gentleman by the name of Richard Roll did it for nuns. Uh, they wanted to be able to read the Psalms in English. They didn't, you know, know Latin, which is what it was in. And and this predates Wycliffe by about forty years. Oh, really? Who is so it's understood like to be fifteenth century or yeah. yeah? So it's like the, he, Wycliffe is understood to be the first to. Translate the scripture into English, but this is at least the book of Psalms that predates uh, Wycliffe. And so um, that that we uh, acquired at an auction. Uh, Where do you find these things? 
Well, uh, some of these guys that want to put a museum in, they had they they were in that space. They knew the auction houses, the delete dealers, the collectors, and so uh, we uh, started with you know some of the auction houses, and they started calling around asking. And also, the economy was struggling in two thousand eight and nine, mm-hmm. and that presented some opportunities. As an example, Cambridge was struggling with some of the endowment the uh, returns, the yeah. university. Uh, in England, and so they decided to sell one of their artifacts, and it's a key artifact that we have in our collection today, uh, because they had studied it, it was sitting on the shelf, and and they needed the. What was it? A book? Or? It was a. It's called the Codex Comacchi Rescriptus, and it's called a rescriptus because it was rewritten on. Okay. And uh, the underlying text is is scripture in much of this document, um, and so we're using multispectral imaging to pull out that underlying text so that we can better understand what was written, and it is. Scripture in Aramaic, which is interesting. Oh, that's unusual. This would be the language, closest language to what Jesus would yeah. have spoken in his home. And this is the largest portion of Scripture known in Aramaic, but it's in the underlying text. So, so you got to go through the presenting text to yeah. find it. Yeah. You must have historians who just love what you've collected. Oh, we have engaged with some of the world-leading scholars uh, in, in their fields. And, and there's lots of, you know, it's a large time period, the history of the Bible. And so you have expertise in different areas. And so we've, we've, we've engaged with many experts around the world to help us uh, in uh, the collection and doing research and study. And this Codex Collectory Scriptus, for example, was new scanning technology at Oxford that was being developed that was scanned there and then taken back to scholars at Cambridge where it came from to help do the translation of that work. So uh, there's been a a great- And you're funding this. Like Oxford and Cambridge can't fund it, but you are. Well, so we we acquired it and we funded the the research on that. And and we have had thousands that have come alongside us in this museum project to help support the museum. To get started, uh, we, we were the, the ones that got it started. Uh, you're also a big supporter of Bible translation. We are. One of the stories we tell in the museum is the story of illuminations, which is uh, what the, the group of Bible societies have been coming together for about eight years now, I believe, once a month in the Dallas airport. They come together to strategize how to finalize the translation of the Bible into every language of the world. Wow. That would have been 100, 200 years off in the future but through the collaborative effort of coming together and saying, let's, let's make sure that we're not duplicating efforts and, you know, how can we do this job faster and better uh, with new technology that is being developed? Uh, they, they have a new target date, and that is the year 2033. Hmm. That is in most of our lifetimes something that's never happened in the history of the world. A book in every language. Wow. There is no close second. Um, and so in the museum, we have a space where there is a book on a shelf that represents every language of the world. There's about 6,000. And it shows those that have adequate scripture. It shows those that have a work in progress and those that haven't even begun. And if they finish the job, it will be in the year 2033, a full bookshelf of completed Bibles. Um, and 2,000 years to the year right after the resurrection right. of Jesus. Yep. So wow. it's an incredible thought that in our day, and, and it is just one of many examples that come to my mind of thinking God is up to something in our day, mm-hmm. and that being an example. Because you can look at the news and come to the opposite conclusion. One of the reasons I'm so glad you're talking about this and you're sharing all of this publicly is I think in a lot of cases, Steve, Christians have an ambivalent relationship with money. It's either making money is terrible, you're a horrible human being, or... Yeah, I am making money and it's all for me. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll give my 10% and, right. you know, thank you. There you go, God, but please don't take my 90. And what I saw in those days and, uh, you know, with some of the people who were in the room was a transformative way of thinking about the money that God entrusts us with. So talk to us about that. Like what, it, you know, from the wantrepreneur or the, the entrepreneur who's starting out and is just beyond making payroll and starting to see a little bit like maybe we can, you know, buy a car or pay cash for something to people who are sitting on significant assets because there's a growing number of business leaders. And even to, even to speak to the attitude that we have about our money, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, my, my grandmother had a favorite line that she would often quote to her kids. My dad is one of six, and, and she, would, she would give the line, only one life soon will pass. Hmm. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so um, – in the history history of Hobby Lobby, I can remember for many years, it was just a matter of surviving and, and being profitable and growing the business and, and uh, uh, being at a point of being able to, to know you survived. And even, uh, you know, 10, 15 years into the business, it was, uh, there's a point of question whether we would survive. But um, as, as we continued to grow and kind of became uh, profitable to a greater extent, that's when a ministry side of the business really developed. Um, I looked at our giving at the time, and it was really, you know, personally, our lives, we were taught. Uh, my parents practiced a tithing of our income, and, and we did that. And I remember looking at the business and saying, I wonder if we're, we're tithing on the income of the business. And when I calculated, I looked at several years, we we weren't. It was mm. kind of short. And it was about the same time that we uh, came across a ministry that the family was excited about and and had a plan, five-year plan to accelerate our giving. And Dad talks later about how that – and he was one that came up with a, a plan. My brother and he both kind of came up with the same concept. And he remembers thinking afterwards, yeah, he just kind of chuckled. We're, we won't be able to do that. There's no way. Um, but we did meet that five-year goal. We did increase our giving to the point. And then today to the point where, uh, as I said, we've, we're giving half of our profits away. So then I kind of calculated all those years that we were deficient, we made up for it pretty, pretty quickly <laughs> um, and to a point where uh, we're exceeding that. And it really is uh, a driving factor to say, boy, I want to be as profitable as I can. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, while, while there are not many businesses get to the point of of being profitable because they're just striving to stay uh, alive. Um, you know, the, the Christian bookstore is one of those that it is not as profitable and it's struggling because of the, the disruption in that industry, sure. the digital disruption. And so it's a matter of just surviving. But for, for Hobby Lobby, God has blessed it to a point where we are able to do that. And um, so it, it's just, it's, we've, we've been blessed. Can you talk about how you decide what to give to? And problems like that scale. I mean, if you're giving a couple hundred dollars a year and you've got a kid's fundraiser down the road and you've got your local church, if you're part of a church, and then you've got your friend who's doing a run for cancer, you know, often, even if you're giving a couple hundred, couple thousand away a year, you feel hammered from all sides. Everybody's asking for money. I can only imagine when you're on a Forbes list that uh, you get asked from time to time. How do you decide? I don't know how many. We get thousands of requests every year, and uh, we do, as a family, come together once a month and discuss a few that kind of get through filters that make their way to the family, and and we decide if we we want to give after some discussion or not. 
uh, it, it started with this one uh, ministry that we were had this five year plan, and then there's been a couple of others. So there's about five or six that we give significantly to that we really felt like God was wanting us to be a part of these. And so, kind of the eighty twenty rule, there's about eighty percent of our giving is in six or seven uh, uh, ministries that we support, uh, and and then there's a variety of others that uh, that we will give to, and and it, it's the family coming together uh, once a month and. Uh, a presentation is made. Here's uh, here's a ministry, and uh, here's the need and the request, and uh, we take a, a vote and decide if if we give to them or not. And so, um, while again, most of them are uh, uh, in a few ministries, there's a few others, but 99 percent of the time, we actually have to say no. And in some cases, we're saying no to some great ministries, but uh, yeah. that's uh, that's the way we do it. Are there are there criteria? That if the six or seven that you're investing in the majority in, are are there certain parallels or similarities? It, it, a lot of it is Bible connected. Yeah. You know, so it's close Bible to your translation, heart. it's Bible distribution, it's the Bible museum. Uh, that is uh, our heart. And so uh, a lot of it is focuses on the Bible. Have you guys had any uh, stake in you version yeah. over the years? Uh, my brother has uh, connected with Bobby Grunewald. Bobby, early on, was calling him because of the Christian bookstore. He was having to get rights to the different translations, and Mart had the relationship, so he calls you know Mart up, and and we have been supporters of Uversion uh, for years, and and helped facilitate. Uh, and that's a story that we tell in the Bible Museum as well. We have a world map that shows up that shows people that are downloading the app or opening the app all across the world. And it's an impressive thought to think this book right now is being engaged with somewhere in the world more than any other book. And again, <laughs> there's not a close second there either. Yeah, yeah. And I think you have the original iPhone. We is do. that true? Can you uh, talk Bobby about Bobby Greenwald that? is on yeah. our board. At yeah. the Bobby's been a previous guest. We'll link to his episode. Yeah, a great guy. And um, he, uh, as we were building the museum after we opened, he had the idea, I wonder if that first iPhone is available because it was a 19-year-old kid that yeah. they the idea came up and he needed a 19-year-old kid to build the 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 app and uh so he downloaded it on his own phone he calls this kid I'm not a kid anymore but yeah. uh, and said do you happen to have that phone that you is it sitting in your mom's basement by any chance <laughs> some some drawer somewhere he pulls it out and sends it to Bobby and so that phone that is, is the uh, phone on display at the museum yeah that's pretty cool yeah. yeah clearly money creates like an ambivalent relationship or feeling in all of us but what really got me is that it is a means to an end you chose an end it's often very scripture focused and getting the gospel out there and as a Christian myself it clarified some things for me. Uh, so what would your advice be to business leaders who maybe feel that ambivalence around money? Well, I think the lesson that has really been a driving force for our family is, is the idea that God owns it all. And, and from a Christian perspective, it's easy to say this is God's business, but the question is, how does that work its way out in the business? Mm. Um, and so uh, that has been some questions that we struggle with, even in our state planning and uh, closing our stores on Sunday. We only open 66 hours in a week. Yeah. Um, you and Chick-fil-A, <laughs> another yeah. very so, profitable company. Uh, so it, it's one that you say, okay, it's easy to say that, but but if we're, if we mean it, what does it look like and how does it work its way out? And, uh, 
That one thought there, though, is if this is God's business, how would he have us operate it? That answers a lot of questions for us. Um, And so um, that, again, somebody that's not a Christian doesn't think that way. But for a Christian businessman, uh, that is uh, something that uh, you have to really think that if God owns it all and we're here to uh, be stewards of what he's entrusted to us, we have to ask ourselves, how would he have us do whatever it is that we're in business to do? You've hinted at it a few times, but there have been some real struggles in the company's history as well. Times where you thought, wow, it's almost over. Can you take us through some of those moments? Because I think a lot of us, we admire the success, but we kind of relate to the struggle. Yeah. Talk about yeah, it's, it's uh, really focused on two family meetings. Um, mm. In 1980, uh, 1986, in the spring, my dad invited the family over to the house and um, sat us down and basically told us he did not know how the, the business would be would survive. Uh, we were in Oklahoma. Most of our stores were in, in uh, that area. And the oil uh, boom had busted. Oh, wow. We were in the oil patch, and businesses were going out left and right, and we were struggling. Uh, 1985 is the only year that we lost money. Uh, and so in 86, our, at the time, our profits were all made in the fourth quarter. So in the spring, here comes a slow summertime, and uh, Dad's just uh, not seeing how the business would survive. He spent a lot of that uh, year uh, on on his knees, crying out to God, uh, avoiding the phone because those calls weren't fun, <laughs> and got to a point where he just cried out, God, God, if you want this company to survive, uh, you're going to have to intervene because I don't, I don't know how we're going to make it. And um, that year wound up being almost double the most profitable year we had had. And so it was kind of a clear sign to dad uh, and a lesson he continues to teach the family even to this day is that this is not our business. Mm. This is God's business. Um, we are only stewards of what he's entrusted to us because if, if were it not for him uh, intervening, we wouldn't be here. So that was the first. Um, well, can, can I ask before you go to the second, what bet. turned it around? Like what happened? Well, I, I, I don't know that dad would have an answer <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's that. inexplicable. It is, it is one of those where, you know, you, you survive that tough season. It was a tough summer. And then, you know, the, the, the seasonal business comes in in the fourth quarter where we made our, our profits. And, and we had gotten rid of a lot of bad inventory in 85, which is what created the, uh, the loss and refocused. Mm-hmm. We know now who we are. Their dad was trying all kinds of things and they were all working uh, during a good economy. But when the economy turned, those things weren't working anymore, had to get rid of them, and really kind of refocused who we are and what we are. And um, But ultimately, the answer is... The God. results were bigger than they should have been. Yeah. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah, yeah that, that's fair. But at least you didn't... It wasn't just inertia either. You prayed and you acted. Right. right. Which is good. Okay. And, and hard work, it was... Yeah. So... Um, so that was the, the first family meeting. The second one was a few years back where uh, the family was facing the requirement of our government through the HHS mandate that we had to provide in our medical insurance to our employees at no cost abortifacients. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's typically referred to as contraceptives. Uh, we offered contraceptives on our health plan, but there were four that were required that could be abortive. Right. And that's where, um, you know, we had been warned beforehand that, uh, you know, when January hits, you'll be required to either provide those or face a fine. Mm-hmm. The fine at that time was calculated at $1.2 million a day. A day. A day. So even a billion-dollar company doesn't last very It was long. not sustainable. Um, could survive a little bit, but it was not survey- su- sustainable long-term. 
So uh, we had a family meeting again and uh, laid it out and uh, the serious consequences. The, this is, you understand, this is not sustainable. And uh, really came back with, there were kind of three options that we felt like God had. One was the problem could be averted. Uh, Daniel was an example of that. He asked the king to provide a different diet that wasn't, uh, went against the Jewish law. So the problem was averted. Uh, he asked for it. It was allowed. It was averted. Uh, next time Daniel was told he couldn't pray to his God later in his life, and uh, there was no appeal option here. So he opens his window and has to face the lion's den, and in that case, God delivered. Um, so those were two options that we knew that God had in, in this discussion. And But sometimes uh, God does use a, a third option, and that is he allows suffering. So uh, Job lost it all. Yeah. Um, Stephen was stoned. So... Sometimes that is what God allows. So it could be the dissolution of the company. It, it, it could cost the company. And, and just to be clear for listeners, um, the question for you, it was a matter of conscience and principle. It's like being pro-life, you, you cannot have these four pills. You just can't do it. And so you either pay the cost or you go out of business or you appeal it and you went to court, right? Yeah. So it was uh, you know either provide those or take our country to court, this country that we love. Mm. Um, and we, we felt like we had really no option. If we're going to, going back to that first lesson, this is God's business and we need to do it his way. Um, would God have us be a part of taking life? And it was pretty clear and the vote was unanimous. We, we can't be a part of taking life. Um, so the only option that we saw was to have, you know, file suit. And uh, so- Actually lost locally, uh, lost a district court, could have been uh, intervened at the Supreme Court level. It wasn't. Asked for an en banc hearing, full court in Denver again, and that we won an injunction, ultimately going to the Supreme Court where where we did uh, have a win. So we, we, were, we had a sense of gratefulness and appreciation for our nation. Uh, that does provide religious freedoms. Um, and while there may be people that disagree with our positioning, hopefully they will understand it is a win for all Americans because— uh, religious freedom is a gift that our founders gave us and, hmm. and is precious. Wow. And so so just to be clear, from a matter of religious conscience, you, you said earlier, uh, we're speaking at the same event and we're backstage, but uh, you said that's a win for all faiths. It, it wasn't just this particular position, but no, the government can't force you to do something that is against your conscience. What was the, the nature of the decision with the Supreme Court? And it was a religious freedom uh, uh, argument uh, yeah. that we were standing on is that as a uh, – and it was somewhat narrowly defined because it was for a tightly held private company. Yeah, private corporation, that, right? Yeah, that we, we did not have to violate our conscience in providing what the government was dictating we provided. And so in many cases, this is for some of the uh, faiths that are, are not as – widely accepted where that this religious freedom protection is more of a uh, of a part you know an indian uh, tribe that has a you know a specific uh, belief or function and and the government says you can't do that and they stand on the religious freedoms and are allowed to, right. to hold that so it's typically minor religions that or beliefs that uh, the the law is used for but this happened to be a broadly accepted uh, Christian belief that uh, the government was requiring uh, Christian businesses to uh, to violate their conscience, and so um, so while it, it protected 
uh, us, uh, it, it also, again, protects other faiths and other religions to be able to uh, operate in our society according to their faiths. I imagine one of the challenges, Steve, is, you know, when you start in your garage, literally, and yep. uh, it's a small family business, even with eight stores, to be at 900 stores and then moving to 1,400 and 41,000 employees and 10 million square feet. Um, there's a lot of scale issues and a lot of companies have difficulty growing, let alone scaling. And you've done this with a lot of family members at the helm too. How have you navigated that? Because that's not easy or automatic. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, you know, when we when I first got started out of high school with eight stores and, and my sister and my brother, it, you know, it was, it was smaller and we've grown up with the company in in many cases. And uh, Gen 3 is a little diff- different experience. Uh, now we have a That's big your company. kids, right? That's my kids and my brother's kids. And, um, you know, as, as they come in, here's we're, it's a fast-moving train going down the track, and how do you jump on? And so uh, a lot of times you just have to say, you know, just just start in a, in a position uh, that, that you like and, you know, grow into it. Uh, but, but there's this idea also that we, we want to be sure that they don't, uh, our kids don't ever feel this pressure that they have to be a part of this business if that's not where their interest or their calling is. Uh, we want them to be where where they where their interest and their calling is. Uh, yes. And uh, so, uh, while the opportunity is there for them to be, become a part of the organization, uh, we 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 want them to not feel that they have to be a part if that's not what they want. Does it ever feel overwhelming to you? At times, you know, at different times, there's uh, especially the struggles comes along and it's like, you know, uh, boy, this is uh, how, how do we handle this? But it, it, at times also, then you just have to kind of put in perspective and, and just realize that uh, none of our decisions are so big that, you know, they, they impact our world to a huge extent. They're, they may be impacting our world, but yeah. Um, in in the, the big perspective of things, our big decisions are small when when you compare to other challenges that people face and deal with. What are some uh, last question for you, Steve? What are some rhythms, habits, and disciplines that have kept you fresh over the last few decades in life and in leadership? Well, I think that um, uh, growing up. Regularly attending church uh, is a, just a part of our life. Uh, we, we, you know, part of a local church, part of a local church, um, and, uh, and then I made a commitment years ago that I would be and uh, read at least five minutes a day minimum uh, in God's Word. So it's a daily discipline that I have. That that discipline is kind of many times I will read a Bible plan in a year, and so mm-hmm. in a year I read it's kind of a high level overview of it. And then another discipline that I think is good for me is that, you know, I rotate with three, uh, two others in our Sunday school class at church and teaching uh, a lesson. And so there I'm doing a deep dive into a portion of scripture versus the high level overview. So it's a mix of let me get the, the high end overview and then go deep uh, for uh, teaching a lesson. And um, no one gets more out of a lesson than the teacher. So yeah, that's very true. Uh, that that is a discipline in my life that has been of great value because God uh, does lots of uh, teaching uh, during those times. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so those to me, that's the, the disciplines that come to my mind is, is is church and being in God's Word on a regular basis that uh, has uh, informed my life. That's good. Anything in terms of nutrition or sleep or other habits, exercise that. So, because you got you got a big load. I mean, yeah. 
running the company, two companies, really, because I'm sure Museum of the Bible sometimes feels like its own thing. You know, I, I would like to be more regular on my exercise, and yeah. uh, my wife will tell me my diet's not as good as it needs to be. And yeah, but then Napoleon use... at lunch was, uh, that was unbelievable, good. was it that not? That was good, yeah. That was great. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, there's obviously some uh, reasonable disciplines there, and yeah. uh, but... Um, uh, what time do you get up in the morning usually? It varies sometimes, you know, it's, yeah, you know, typically six or six thirty is, is the most typical, yeah. um, unless if it's a, got an early flight and I got to be up at five or something, but, um, that typically when you get up is six to six thirty somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. You love to read the Bible. Are you a reader on other things? You know, I'm not as much. I, my brother is a bookworm, but mm-hmm. I don't read nearly as much as, as he does. Uh, the Bible is the, the focus, um, uh, and uh, but but do enjoy reading a good book uh, now and then. And um, well, you've written a few. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, and where we can find you online. There's there's uh, four books that I've been involved. The first one is uh, uh, the Bible uh, Bible in America, where I talk about the newspaper ads that Hobby Lobby puts in Christmas and Easter, and it it was some of the comments that created a discussion. So that's what that book is about. The Bible in America, which the survey that we did for the Bible Museum. Uh, thousand uh hundred questions a thousand people across the country and the results of that is what the the bible in america book is about me and my wife wrote a book this dangerous book and that that is talking about our journey and building the bible museum uh, how the bible's influenced our life and a little bit of the bible story and then the one that comes out in november is called this beautiful book so this Mm -hmm. dangerous book and then this beautiful book uh, and the purpose there is just to tell the bible story we want Mm -hmm. people to basically have an understanding of the bible story I remember going seeing Les Miserables uh, on Broadway, not knowing the story, and I was lost. Yeah. I didn't understand it. Who is this Jean Valjean guy? I had that same problem, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, friends loved it. So I went home and I said, I got to give it a better try. I'm going to rent one of the movies and watched it and loved it. Went back, watched the Broadway play and loved the play. (laughs) One of my favorites. So having an understanding of the play helped me enjoy it. And so the same thing with the Bible. Many people read a part in a piece and know a story here or there, but I think they need to understand, first of all, the overall story of the Bible. Then it makes the Bible come alive more and make more sense when you read a story. Oh, I see how that plays into the big picture. So that's what the... This beautiful book is all about. Oh, that's going to be great. Steve, if people want to find you or the books, is there a website? Obviously, Hobby Lobby. Where do you find Hobby Lobby online? The HobbyLobby.com uh, okay. is is our website. Uh, we don't have the website up for the this uh, beautiful book, This Dangerous Book. You can go to ThisDangerousBook.com as well and see it there, as well as you know going to whatever your online uh, book source is and, and acquire it there. Well, Steve, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much. And thanks for inspiring and helping uh, so many leaders. You bet. Thank you for having me. Don't you just love stories like that where you do something that's completely counterintuitive, like growing retail in a shrinking environment and paying your employees significantly more than your competitors and making a uh, good amount of money that you can reinvest in the process. Fascinating. If you want more, we've got transcripts for this episode. So head on over to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 302, where uh, you will find them for free along with the show notes, all the links to everything we mentioned. And um, hey guys, if you subscribe next week, you are going to want to hear my conversation with Rebecca Lyons. Subscribing is absolutely free. Uh, she has some amazing, amazing content right now. She's released a new book 
about panic attacks, anxiety, stress, and how to cope with it. She tells her own story, and we'll give you an excerpt from that in uh, in just a second. But if you haven't yet applied to promediafire.com slash 2020 to become one of 20 churches that is part of their Growth Accelerator program next year, make sure you do that now. Applications can be received until December 1st. And get on in on the Red Letter Challenge by going to redletterchallenge.com forward slash carry. And uh, that way, you know, Christmas is almost here and gone, but you've got Easter next year. A lot of churches are using Red Letter Challenge at Easter. So you can check that out. Now, here's an excerpt from my conversation that happens next week on the podcast with Rebecca Lyons. So calling for me, the way I define it is where your talents and your burdens collide. And so mm. we get these birthright gifts in the womb, Psalm 139, God, God, all our you know, all our days are written and planned before one of them begins, and then he knits us and his works were wonderful. And then he invites us into this destiny um, that is really informed by burden, I believe. So I think the world understands that the birthright gifts, this natural things that we're gifted at, yeah. but they don't always know why. And the burden is informed by the life you live, the the journey you the family you've been born into. It's actually the places of pain. It's things that have broken your heart. It's the things that make you weep. I'm really looking forward to that interview. Now, uh, I love getting your questions, so make sure on whatever platform you're on, you just use the hashtag AskCary, that's C-A-R-E-Y. Ask your question. Uh, We've got them in queue. We tackle one a week at the end of the podcast. And this week, Tony asks... If you give one bit of advice to yourself 15 to 20 years ago, what would it be? So yeah, I would have been a leader in my 30s, late 20s, early 30s. And what would I advise myself? Well, here's here's the number one piece of advice looking back on my life. And some of you heard it before, but I think I'm going to talk about it till I die. Simply this, work twice as hard on your character, Carrie, as you do on your competency. I was a hyper-driven leader, still am a hyper-driven leader. I get up every day excited about what's ahead. Well, almost every day, but pretty much every day. And competency is is not going to be an issue. I'm not claiming to be competent. I'm just saying, man, I'm driven. And a lot of you are driven. Listen, you listen to the end of this podcast, so you are driven, Okay. But what's more important and what really determines your legacy is character. It's just character. So that's who you are. It's who you are when nobody's looking. It's who you are to your family if you're married. It's who you are to your team. And you know who feels the edges of your character most? It's the people who are closest to you. So that is your family. That's your inner circle on your staff or your key volunteers. And Here's the reality. That's where we always let our guard down, right? That's where you're like, ah, bah, 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 bah. And, and next thing you know, nobody wants to work with you. Nobody wants to live with you, or it's just difficult to do that. And so it's been a real journey for me over the last 15 to 20 years to really keep working on my character. And uh, I said this in an email recently, for those of you who are on my email list. And by the way, if you're not, and you want to jump on, just go to kerryneuhoff.com, uh, type your name and email into one of those dialogue boxes you will see. And you will be. But I spent some time with John Ortberg a few weeks ago. And we're sitting down after breakfast looking over the Pacific Ocean. And I asked John, who's been on this podcast, I just said, what are you going to do with the next 20 years of your life? Are you going to keep writing or whatever? And his, his, you know, I expected a, here's what I'm going to do answer. And he said, uh, he gave me a, a, this is what I'm going to be. He says, I'm really working on who I am. I'm like, wow, that is a great goal. So I agree, John. And character... <laughs> 
is far more important than your competency because ultimately your character, not your competency, determines your capacity and your character, not your competency, is really your legacy. Now, I promise to give you a piece of advice I don't give very often. This is a bonus one. You know what else I would tell myself 15 to 20 years ago? Get a hobby, dude. Get a hobby. All you do is work. You work, you're with your family, you sleep, go get a hobby. And since I burned out last decade, I've had uh, several hobbies. Uh, one of which I tried some stuff. I tried photography. It didn't work out. I bought a camera and I, I got bored. But uh, the three that have stuck with me are barbecue. I love my big green egg. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that's an obsession. I enjoy doing it. Uh, we are boaters. We live near a beautiful lake. And so we have a boat. And I also bought a bike. I cycle. I really, it's the only form of exercise I actually enjoy. Uh, so those are some hobbies I have. We do some other things as well, but man, get a life, dude. Get a life, okay? That's the advice I have to myself. Next week, we're back with a fresh episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.